Okay, this is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. And with me today is Hans. Hans, how are you doing? You look very pale. Did you just wake up? Yeah, I have had like four hours of sleep, so I just, uh, I feel like shit. But I'm, I'm doing well. <laughs> I just haven't, haven't slept much. I'm a little paler than usual today. <clears throat> I can tell. And uh, on the show, we have a special guest, first-timer, Kid Polaroid. You don't want to be doxxed, right? Uh, no, I don't mind. You could, we can go with the name. Why don't we just come up with like a fake name for you? Uh, Kid Polaroid. <laughs> <laughs> we'll stick with that. We'll call you uh, James as a Smythe. As a Smythe? As a Smythe. All right, I'll go with that. The the composer of Mass State Lottery, the upcoming feature film, Hans's starring debut, introducing Hans. You don't want to be docs now. I was going to use <laughs> No. How's it going today, Kyle? Going well. Been watching a lot of Michael Mann lately, up until even just uh, last night. I uh, decided to watch the 2006 version of Miami Vice. Oh, no. <laughs> why would you? I just, I, I just did that the other day because uh, I, I have the Miami Vice television show box set on Blu-ray. And I got my girlfriend into it. And she was curious about the, the movie that was made like 15 years ago. And it couldn't be a further departure from what that original series was. No, I agree. Well, I, well, I I've, just... never seen, I've never seen it. What's What's the... Like, what's the biggest difference between the two? Since he was... Everything. Every Everything is different. The only thing that is similar to the series is that they use the same character names and it's a white cock cop. That's it. Yeah. And it's in Miami. Uh, what was your take on the on the remake, though? Oh, God. Um, yeah, basically, like what you just said, there, there was almost... It was only, like, surface level, like, similarities. It was, like, basically they just used the same furniture for a different movie. And uh, it was just flaccid. You noted the other similarity is that it takes place in Miami. It hardly takes place in Miami. That's they true. They go to what, like Brazil Cuba. or something? They spent like, it, it seemed very clear to me that Michael Mann probably didn't want to do any more Miami Vice, but he thought, oh, I can do like a Miami Vice. I can get funding for a Miami Vice movie and then do my own movie through that. That was my take. And also Colin Farrell's acting was really bad in that movie. How's his acting? Like, uh, not good at that point. I mean, I don't think he's a bad actor. I yeah. think he's been especially great lately with like the killing of a sacred deer and the lobster and all yeah. these weird art. House. Even True Detective season two, he's very good on that. But in this movie, he he just can't nail it at all. It's it's really terrible. There was another similarity actually: uh, the use of the song "In the Air Tonight." <laughs> they did a for two thousand and six. This movie had a budget of one hundred and thirty five million. That sounds like a lot for that type of movie. I don't know. That's where the Miami Vice name comes in handy, Hans. Where did that <laughs> budget go? Like, what do you see it on screen ever, or does it not feel? It, it, it maybe. I mean, it, it could have very well been put to use, but they used. I mean, Michael Mann had this period in the arts where he was obsessed with using like certain handy cams that had really like low grade picture, didn't offer uh, good like low light quality. So you, you see a lot of these night shots and it looks like somebody literally shot it with like their iPhone or something. It's so choppy and uh, poor quality. So it's hard to, it's hard to say. Um, my guess is, you know, Michael Mann probably did put a lot of that to use, but using the, I think it's called the Thompson uh, Viper film stream camera. That was a mistake. He used that on collateral as well, which preceded mm -hmm. this. And I, I remember I saw collateral when I was like, 
15 years old and I really enjoyed that movie. And I watched it again maybe about four months ago and it was, it did not hold up at all. I mean, Miami Vice, I've always known was a terrible movie. I, w- I wouldn't even say terrible. It's just not a very good it's movie. It's collateral, that Tom Cruise one where he has yeah. white hair? Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, he's very fake deep in that movie. He's like, oh, <laughs> you're so insignificant among the stars. You're just one little particle. And that's like his excuse for being a hitman or something. He's a very amazing mm-hmm. atheist. Terrible. <laughs> um, but we're going to be talking about Michael Mann's better days. We're going to be talking about the 1980s, starting with Thief, his 1981 debut. I would be hard-pressed to name a debut from another director, say from like Orson Welles, where he does Citizen Kane, it's the best movie of all time, where you you have as competent of a film come out from a director on their first go. Uh, I just I just had it playing on my television to get refreshed on it because I had watched everything else somewhat recently. And it's just competent on all levels. He also kind of started his film directing career fairly late. I believe he was around 38 years old when he made this movie. And he had a bit of a career in television uh, prior to this movie's release, which is, I think, how he got the funding he did and also got James Caan involved. Not necessarily fresh off The Godfather, but still within a pretty short period of time. Um, would you say that this is his best movie, though? No, I wouldn't. No. You, what would you? I would, I would, whatever you would say is his worst movie is his <laughs> best Man movie. Hunter. Yes, yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Um, but we'll get to Manhunter. We'll get to your, I don't understand that take at all. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Kyle, what was your impression of Thief? Uh, Thief, um, when I watched it, I actually didn't even know where it was in the Michael Mann timeline. Actually, the only movie I'd seen of Michael Mann's before watching Thief, I think was, uh, Collateral, Mm. which I had saw when I was also like 15 years old. And, um, so I just put it on. And um, I would have never guessed that it was so early in his career. Uh, it was such a strong film. Uh, it was just, there was nothing, usually a director, you know, it wasn't his debut, it was the Jericho Mile, his his first uh, directorial feature. Depends if you count TV movies. I, I tend That's to, true. I tend to not count TV movies because especially back in the 1970s where a lot of these TV films were essentially backdoor pilots or they were treated similarly to uh, television shows. You know, the director didn't have a lot of say in the matter in terms of directing it. But I haven't seen the Jericho Mile. I mean, it could be some weird artistic piece where it's definitely, you know, he's got his signature on it. But um, yeah, I haven't seen that one either. Uh, but I, I would have never guessed that this would have been a director's, you know, first cinematic uh, debut because it just was so strong and uh had such a style carved out. There was uh, usually you can sense that a director doesn't know where they're going. That feels a little timid, uh, confused sometimes. But uh, it was such a gritty crime film just right out the gate. Uh, you could just it was so well researched and it presented such a real feel of like just you know, underground L.A. crime life, you know, it's hard to assume that this was just the director's first film. I mean, you mentioned he was older when he had his breakout, so he did have some time. He, he'd been working in the field for a while at this point, so there's that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, 
the first, the, the most, the biggest impression that I, I came away with from the film was just the straight up realism of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it just the scenes of James Can breaking into a safe uh, was, they were so drawn out and yeah. detailed. You literally see uncut someone breaking into a safe. There's no like, oh, you see him put the drill up. Next shot is him opening the safe up. You literally see the drill hit the safe, him go in, him reach into the safe, try to figure it. It's like a five-minute cut. And uh, I come to find out later that James Cam was really the one doing all yeah. that, too. He really huh. learned how to crack so, safes for the film. The thing with this movie is it's based on a, a, a fictional novel from an actual uh, a thief, a jewel thief. And that guy who had such an illustrious career in crime was like the supervisor on the film and taught them how to really break into safes and whatnot. And, uh, you know, he wound up going to prison, like I think 20 years ago for a short period of time. But uh, they got him on this, and that's why all these scenes are legitimate. They look impressive. And I think there was some kind of concern with the studio or, or, or something when this movie was finished that uh, people would look at it as an instruction manual. Like you hear that a lot with like Breaking Bad, where people are like, oh, well, people mm. are going to pick up how to cook meth from this TV show. Yeah. Like the one person who's going to try that. There's yeah. a similar concern here with Thief when it would be released. I can see it's that. It definitely a... makes being a thief look really cool. It's an influx of jewel teeth. Yeah. Uh, the, the two things that really stuck out to me, well, was well, one of them was what you just mentioned. The, the fact that he drawn out uh, those scenes instead of doing a modern day, uh, cut, 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 cut to make it more action-packed, I guess, even though it's not really something that's very action-packed. But I, I could see how uh, a modern director will cut that to make it not as drawn out. But at the same time, I'd be like uh, that uh, gave it a lot of realism. Same thing with when they were breaking into the ceiling, when he, they went through the cables and uh, one by one to check the, the wattage and all that. Like, you didn't need that, but it added a lot of realism to it. And I don't know if that would be included in a modern film unless you're talking about a director that is able to get away with shit like that because, again, like it was really drawn out. Uh, and uh, for that same reason, it stood out. And also, um, the dialogue was very of, of the time, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, and that also brought a lot of realism because you're dealing with like the underground, like with... with uh, People that are not going to be very polite, especially if they're into like a gov it's not a government building. Uh, the the scene that sticks out to me is when he's trying to adopt yeah, a child, yeah, yeah. and and he's refused the child, and he's like, "Well, don't you have any kids that nobody wants?" You got a chink wants? kid. Like, you got a black kid. You got an eight-year-old chink black, black kid? kid that nobody wants. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and. Uh, I mean, it was jarring at first because you like you don't see that anymore. Nowhere. It doesn't matter what you watch. Anything modern from five years ago to now, maybe even more than that, you're not going to find that type of dialogue. But since you're dealing with that type of characters, it worked really well. And he brought an extra layer to that character that, uh, you know, if you didn't include it, maybe he wouldn't have that edge, at least from those scenes. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like those little moments added a lot to, to that character. Yeah, totally. I think he completely nailed the vibe of the guy who is not from polite society trying to fit within this this little thing and just completely fucking up the whole interaction by just being to himself. Um, yeah, James Conn is great in this role. 
And uh, one of the things, I mean, not related to the acting or, or time, one thing that sticks out to me with this film is the color palette. It is so cool-toned, especially compared to the rest of Michael Mann's uh, filmography. It's one of the things that I feel really uh, sticks out, especially with like the cinematography. Um, you know, you see these these great shots of like the used car lot where he works or, you know, as you guys were talking about, like breaking into the safe and it's all, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't feel oversaturated. It doesn't feel overdone. Like it overwhelms the image. There's just something about it that I find very vibrant. And it feels very gritty and he got creative a couple of times too with, with uh, uh, split screenshots. Yeah. Uh, especially, especially at the beginning, when when he's uh, going to be hired by this by this old man, and you see the detectives looking at him from afar. There's a couple of really cool split shots with the detective's face and the background there that uh, work really well, and it gave gave it a, an extra uh, visual thing that you don't really see for a, a lot of the movie. Uh, but there's those little moments when you can see like the hand of a director, uh, just getting creative with, with different shots and, and the, the look of it. Uh, I agree with, with the fact that it doesn't look like a debut film of, of anyone really is, is very well crafted and at no point it felt amateurish or cheap. Uh, it could be because of the, um, subject matter and, and the world that they live in, but uh, it like if you had told me that this was his fifth or sixth film, I would completely believe it. Yeah, I like hearing you guys talk about the cinematography aspect of these films because there's there's only there's certain aspects of films that I'm a lot more conscious of than others. And like for example, you talking about even the type of camera he was using on like Collateral, like I I love hearing about that stuff. I, I the color palettes, these are things I love thinking about, but I'm totally unconscious of it at the times I'm watching the uh -huh. films. What did you make of the soundtrack? They have uh, Tangerine Dream scoring the film, and it has such a uniquely 80s sound. Like they did Sorcerer, they would do uh, The Keep, which is his second film, and uh, I, I, To Live and Die in L.A., I think. Oh, no, no, no. That was, um, excuse me. I think that was Wang Chung did that. Very different. Uh, but I didn't see that, that, one. that one's very good. Um, but what what did you make of the the score here? I uh, I like the score for Thief. I like the fact that it was so unabashedly eighties. Um, it's mm -hmm. almost like Thief itself almost set a tone for the eighties, uh, just as a whole. Um, just, just like we were talking about the scenes with the safe cracking, a scene like that, which spans like five minutes, opens up so much room for music. Um, even though you do you are seeing all the sparks flying off the drill and you hear the sounds of the drill doing its thing. You, it's a perfect opportunity for Tangerine Dream to just like go to work as yeah. well, kind of like the safe cracking. Uh, and then it's just so synth-laden. I love how the, the 80s synth is just, uh, it's right at the beginning of the 80s, the film comes out and it's got all this synth and it's, it just sets the tone. Uh, for 80s crime drama in so yeah. many ways. So I think this this film had a hand in something you had just said, uh, where it begins to define a lot of... It lays the groundwork, I, I would say, for what the general impression visually of what the 1980s in media will be. It has a lot of similar aesthetics to The Driver, which is a Ryan O'Neill film from 
late 1970s. It, ha- it, it carries over into that. I don't think it's as defined here as it will be with certainly Miami Vice and Manhunter. But he's starting to build that 1980s che- texture with this movie that I think will get carried over uh, into other filmmakers' uh, filmographies like Abel Ferreira and uh, William Friedkin later in the 80s. What do you guys make of Thief, just generally speaking, as a film in terms of quality? Do you, do you, I mean, clearly it's an impressive film on a technical level, but did this movie do it for you with its story or with its performances, etc.? Definitely for me. I, I love the film all around. Uh, for me, I think that what I most consciously come away with when I watch a film, uh, surprisingly, uh, I don't really think of the score too much uh, consciously at the time when I'm watching the film. I, I honestly would prefer that. I did listen a little bit more consciously, but um, I just can't help myself. I just get lost in the dialogue and the story. And I come away from the films just only thinking about basically the story and the characters. And uh, in Thief, which uh, is written by Michael Mann as well, um, I loved the, um, like we were talking about the scene where he's adopting the child, that thematic, uh, aspect, which I seen, which comes up a lot in, in other characters of his film, where it's a guy who he's become this outcast and he wants a way back in. He, he's, he wants, he thinks he knows the path to being happy and, he sees it as becoming like a, a normal person and putting his past behind him. And him trying to do that is just so difficult. And this movie, especially how he has the uh, his boss, I, I forget who the actor is that plays yeah. that old guy, the boss. That guy is fantastic in this movie. I, I, uh, I couldn't believe how good this guy was. Um, and he plays like a the he almost represents uh James Can's uh past. He's like his past that won't let him escape, you know. Uh-huh. And I love that aspect of the movie. I thought that movie did such a great job at that. The, I I really liked the ending too. I felt like it was really satisfying. Uh it wasn't completely unbelievable either. There was a no point where he became a superhero or where he, you know, became a Bruce Willis character. Uh, the way that he got rid of everyone was very believable, uh, and uh, that helped just close up close up this movie that that felt very real, and very grounded, with a with a very quote unquote real ending uh, that just closed it up perfectly for me. Um, I honestly wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did because I'm I usually find a lot of issues with this old movie just because of the way that movies were done before and because I've been exposed to so much more modern movies mm-hmm. than old ones. So my uh, opinion is always a little bit influenced because most of the time things that I've seen have been referenced by modern movies or have been done similarly by modern movies so they don't affect me as much, I guess. But this one, from the begin- right from the beginning, it, it, it grabbed my attention and... I was glued to my screen until the end. I, I rewatched uh, part of it this morning too, just because I wanted to see. Uh, well, when Jim yeah. Belushi got yeah, killed, I was going to ask again. what, you, what your opinion <laughs> on, according to Jim, <laughs> being in this movie was. 
he wasn't he wasn't bad. He was playing that character that he can play really well. He's just like kind in shape, kind of fat dickhead. And he was good at it. Like he he played a, a decent, you know, uh Jim Belushi character in this one. And then when he died, it, it was great the way that he died. So I, I enjoyed that and I wanted to see it again. Uh, and I just wanted to watch the ending again because I I remember enjoying it a lot when I first watched it last week. Uh, but I just wanted to make sure that, you know, it was done as well as I thought it was. And yeah, it, it worked really well for me. I, from the Michael Mann movies that I've seen, this is my favorite. That's why I asked you earlier. About All that. right. Uh, I'm curious to see how your opinion changes so dramatically between this and Manhunter. Because I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't see them as totally okay. dissimilar from one another. I do think in, in some ways that Thief is more refined than Manhunter. It doesn't feel as commercial. Mm -hmm. It feels more like a personal project. But we'll get to that point. So uh, let's get into The Keep next. Because I, I, you guys essentially rattled off everything that I feel about this movie, which is that it's a great film. Performances are great. Uh, all of James Caan's long monologues and stories that he tells the other yeah. characters. You don't really see that too often in movies nowadays. Real character-building moments uh, are, mm -hmm. are all fantastic. And I, I do like that uh, the ending is not like a happy, clean getaway. Like, he loses a lot. He has to sacrifice a lot in order to come out with any sort of victory, which is great. The Keep appeals to me. I, I'm, I'm very, I have a penchant for all kinds of, like, lost films and, and unmade films. Weirdo and The film. Keep is something that has been read, essentially, up until recently. Now, you could always buy it on Amazon for, like, $1.99, but you're going to get probably, like, a VHS transfer of that because nobody has gone out of their way to mm. refurbish that film or, or restore it or, or go and, you know, grab the original print and clean it up. That's kind of harsh, isn't it? Especially with how many old shitty movies have been <laughs> put out now. Uh, and, and that's not an insult, just, you know, that's, that's the, the, the goal that they go for, those B-movies or those low-budget, you know, shitty films. But this movie's not terrible i mean it's watchable there are points the effects might be shit but it's very watchable and the story is interesting enough uh for me to wonder why no one's done a re-release or like a new so transfer that has probably more to do with michael mann i don't think i mean michael mann does not like this movie he disowned it he's tried to bury it on a number of occasions because the studio took his three and a half hour weird uh epic, epic. and chopped it down to 90 minutes, which is what this film probably should be, is 90 minutes. I, yeah. I've, I've been so curious about this movie for the longest time. I, I bought a bootleg Blu-ray of it off a Instagram vendor earlier this year. I watched it not really knowing what to expect. And yeah, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think this movie was as big of a mess as you know history has painted it to be. There's certainly some issues yeah. with it. And I, I don't really think that's the fault of even the studio who chopped it up. Like, the guy who did the special effects in this movie wound up dying, I think, immediately <laughs> Immediately when they began. Like, he made all the props and everything. He's like, good to go. And then he just drops dead when they, you know, have to apply them to the film. So It's the curse of the key. Yeah, the curse of the key. <laughs> it's the monster. Monster. Yeah. So, and and <laughs> I will say, you know, I, I've read the book uh, that this movie's based on. And the tone of the book is so different from the tone of the movie. The movie is this weird, oddly like spiritual monster film. Yeah. And 
you don't really know what it's trying right, to be. Yeah, really. yeah. There's so much in it that it's kind of confusing or difficult to figure out what it's completely. Going for. And the book feels more like a traditional like vampire story. It's a, it's essentially like a Dracula novel incorporating uh, German soldiers and SS soldiers occupying this, you know, this fortress. And it, it, it plays out in that way. And there's also zombies and all this and that. And that doesn't yeah. really seem to be a factor with the Keep 1983. It's really just this big brooding monster that likes to manipulate people and kill people off. Maybe, maybe that's on the cutting room floor. That's the hour and a half we didn't get. The zombies. Yeah, maybe. I'm hoping a lot of what was on the cutting room floor was the romance between Glaken and the woman because that romance moves so fast. Uh, I have to assume it's part of that 90 minutes. The reptilian guy? Yeah. Creep. <laughs> yeah. I hope a little bit more of his backstory was probably in that 90 minutes too. Yeah. What did you make of the performances in this movie? It was weird to see old Ian McKellen in that's that's his name, right? Ian yeah. McKellen? Yeah. In being old 40 years ago. <laughs> I was not expecting him to pop up. I didn't know who was in it at all. And then when he popped up, I was like, oh shit, he's old. This has a and pretty solid cast. Uh yeah. they have Ian yeah, McKellen. I'm, I'm not, yeah. I, oh yeah, yeah. It's I mean more than you would expect for this type of movie. Uh especially Julia Louis Dreyfus. He had, yeah. <laughs> but it was just kind of jarring because it, the movie came out 40 years ago and he was already old back then. So it's just like, how fucking ancient is this man? But yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it's it's a weird movie to uh, criticize because, again, it's all over the place and you don't really know if you're supposed to take everything seriously or not or is it, you know, on the cheek? I don't know. It, it was fine. I, I don't really have... A lot to shit on besides the <clears throat> uh, the the last fight with the lasers yeah. that look like shit. Yeah. I'm assuming that you know it's just the time you didn't have the the means to do it, but yeah, it looked like like garbage. No, I mean, besides, yeah, it's just, it's, you're you're yeah. right. It's it's hard to criticize this movie when it feels it it almost feels unfinished. It feels very cobbled. Like there's another movie that. Uh, came out in, I think, 2005, called Dominion, which was Paul Schrader's version of the Exorcist prequel that he got fired off of after completing that. And they released that out to, like, video on demand, maybe about a year after Rennie Harlan's Exorcist prequel, Exorcist the Beginning, came out. And a lot of it felt unfinished. Like, the visual effects were not even done, and they still put this movie out and sold it. It was, oh, uh, it, 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 yeah, it's, uh, it's very disjointed. And that's kind of what the keep reminded me of at points. It just felt, it felt like, well, what do we have done with this movie? What scenes are completed enough? Okay, we're going to stick these together. And it works just decently enough that it's passable. Like, I don't think the average person would identify that in their viewing of the keep. They would probably just think this is a boring movie or this movie sucks or mm -hmm. something like that along those lines. Yeah, it's not... I, I get that same feeling, too. You can rip on this movie all day for a lot of reasons, but it's very obvious that it's just unfinished, so it is kind of unfair. I mean, they did release it, though, so you know they still put it out there for the world, but um, 
I, uh, I I could criticize it, but at the same time, I still love watching it. It's it's a very weird uh, love hate uh, kind of thing I have with this film. There's plenty of it's, interesting creative choices that are made with this yeah. movie, and especially like the visual design and the soundtrack and ev- everything on that level is totally competent. It's just how it's all mashed together <laughs> is where it falls apart. Yeah. Do you think he's he buried it because? It's the only movie in his career that's got such a fantasy theme of vampires and Nazis. I don't know. I don't know why he did films, this movie. This is this movie is very unlike him. They're like yeah. very crime, crime like is usually about crime. Is usually about someone trying to get over something and you know still carrying that shit. Like you know, like it's not it's nothing nazis and vampires you know like it's very completely different to any other movie that he's made i guess well you don't even yeah. get the impression in this movie that it's a vampire right he yeah. he transforms the the monster a bit or he brings out certain aspects of it to make it seem uh you know more like a general monster i don't know yeah, yeah. it's it's a very peculiar film but that's also i i, I think part of its appeal for me anyway is uh it it is unlike anything else in his filmography. It's an odd choice, especially to go with following Thief for your second film. You want to do this big fantasy <laughs> epic, three hours, this three and a, three what and a half hours. The size of those balls, dude. Can you imagine your next movie is going to be three hours and it's a fantasy movie in Romania? I don't know if they filmed it in Romania, but it's supposed to be there, right, in a fucking mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the second movie. Fictional village. It, it's extremely ambitious. And if I didn't know, if I saw all of Michael Mann's films and didn't know the timeline, I would assume that this was probably his breakout film just because it is very confused and lost and uh, it's unfinished. It seems, it seems, I mean, it kind of would have been his first film in a certain genre if he had kept going in that direction. Uh, but it seems like he decided to just not even try with the... Uh, Indiana Jones-esque kind of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, I like it for its ambition. I, I think a lot of the special effects uh, are actually really quite cool um, considering all the context. Uh, like the scene where Molossar is first talking to um, Ian McKellen's character and after the conversation, they just show this shot where he's standing there with his hand on Ian McKellen's shoulder, and they're in front of this window, and the light's coming through. That shot's very epic looking. All the shots of the keep, they're walking into the door, and you see the keep all the spikes. Yeah. Yep. The keep looks badass, too. Just It's literally a giant stone fortress. So the, the three-hour cut, that doesn't exist, then? That's never been released. And... I don't know. I mean, it, it's difficult to say. People are always like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they got rid of the original prints. Da, 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 da. But they always seem to exist. They always turn up at some point. I wouldn't, I, I, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility they're buried somewhere on the Paramount lot in some, some form, maybe even just video dailies. I think, I, think the, I think we'll probably wind up seeing that movie before Michael Mann is dead, or maybe after Michael Mann is dead. Because he really, cool. he really hates this movie. He does. He never Probably wants to talk it. about it. Yeah, uh, but it did get a release recently on DVD, somewhat restored from I think they. I don't know if they actually got 
access to the original prints or if they just took the laser disc and cleaned it up a little bit. But over in Australia, they had released a region-free DVD of it, I think, this year. So maybe there might be some hope for that or some kind of special edition Blu-ray. I know Shout Factory is yeah. really in, like killing it as far as weird, obscure horror movies go, and this would totally be up their alley. So maybe something like that could come down the pike or if Criterion wants to acquire that. Right. I don't think it would be that mm-hmm. difficult. They did put out Thief, so... Who knows? It's strange that Michael Mann also hates it. It seems to me, I'd have to assume that this was a passion project of his because it's so out of left field. And I assume it must have had a lot of meaning to him because he's doing Jericho Mile, he's doing Miami Vice, he's writing for Crime TV, and then he does Thief. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he does this crazy, like, folklore. Um, it's very esoteric, and my assumption is that this was like his all like his own, like like it was his own project, his own passion project, and that maybe the studio screwed him over and the budget didn't come through, or it was, somehow was left unfinished, and maybe he resented that. But I didn't actually expect him to resent the film and the endeavor itself. Uh, it's you know it's fair for everyone else to to hate it i guess but i didn't expect for him to hate it so much it's almost like what were you even doing then like why were you even what'd you expect you know he's very josh trank yeah i I was literally about to say that that's that's a total josh trank move so josh trank directed the fantastic four that fox put out before they were acquired by uh, marvel studios proper and he was really into doing this fantastic four movie and making it like a david cronenberg film very body horror and there's aspects of it that are really cool, especially for a modern superhero yeah. movie. The character designs are like creepy in a Superman 3 kind of way. I, I really like those aspects. And then it just completely turns into a different film in like the last 40 minutes. It turns into yeah. uh, Cheese Whiz. It's awful. It's, it's really bad. And uh, Josh Trank took the brunt of that. The studio took it away from him, made their own movie, and uh, you know applied you know his scraps that he had left behind. And for a while, he was like, well, fuck the studio, fuck the studio, fuck the studio. Then he gets a little bit of a taste of Hollywood again. He's working with Tom Hardy on that Capone movie, and he's like, so me and my shitty film, right, guys? You know, oh, that yeah, movie yeah. sucks. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even look at it anymore. It's, it's terrible. It's like, you, you, you coward. How, how dare he deleted, you? He deleted all his old tweets yeah. <laughs> just to make sure that no one, yeah. Yeah, because he, he before the movie came out, I think he he said something on Twitter shitting on it. Yep, before the movie yep. was released. <laughs> yeah, he stood by his cut of the film up until again recently. His name comes up and he's making movies again because he realized, okay, that door is going to remain permanently shut if I say anything bad about the executives who took this away from me. Who do you think is opening doors for him though after Capone? Uh, probably foreign financers. I I I mean. That's always the way to go after you've been blacklisted. Like I, I put up a post yesterday about Dennis Hopper where he had certain behaviors on his second movie that got him blacklisted, like disappearing for multiple days because he was addicted to heroin or something. Not rape, Hans. I know I know that face. Okay. <laughs> um, well, you never know. It's Hollywood, right? Yeah, you're right. So uh, the, the move then is to just go over to Europe and be like, hey, I'm a commodity now. And try to make deals that way. They kind of get into that a little bit in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Leo's character. Once he's kind of washed up in yeah. Hollywood, 
go to Europe. So Italy? Yeah. 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 So, so do you think he's going to end up directing those Russian Steven Seagal movies? Honestly, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility for Josh Trank. We'll see. We'll see how Capone uh, fares on VOD once the year is up, you know? Still, still early. Maybe he'll get an Oscar. Who knows? Not much competition this yeah. year. So uh, the keep. What else can be said about the keep? What did you guys make of the uh, the design of the the monster in this film? I thought that was probably the best part, honestly. I I love how Molasar looks, especially uh, how he evolves too. Yeah, I like that. He starts off kind of. You know, he actually, I think maybe the reason why he doesn't look like a vampire like he's supposed to in the book uh, is because he's probably, I think he's supposed to represent like a golem. Yes, yeah. And he, he kind of looks like he's put together out of clay when he's finally in his final form. He's very smooth and gray looking, almost like futuristic looking while he's in this old village town. He doesn't really look like a ghost or demon or a vampire. He looks like almost like a cyberpunk monster um and uh, the glowing eyes and the mouth i thought that was so so cool oh and the the way they use um when he's still kind of like half put together he's kind of like still spirit uh they use like fog and fans to like make him look like a an apparition mm -hmm. i thought that was i thought that looked really cool too which is his eyes glowing yeah i thought that was yeah. awesome it kind of looks skeletorish to me at times, which I'm not complaining about. Uh, but yeah, the, the the design was cool. It was creepy, but and I think it, it fit really well with the the lore of it being in a village and it being some type of you know monster that is kind of nondescript, kind of like we don't really know exactly what he is. Um, but yeah, yeah, it, it looked really good. He also has badass traps. Yeah, <laughs> at the end of that. So Michael Mann's The Keep is taken away from him and it winds up bombing commercially and he goes back to television for work. In 1984, Miami Vice premieres on NBC and I've only learned recently that the pilot is not directed by Michael Mann. It's actually directed by the director of Coach Carter, that Samuel Jackson movie from The Odds. Also, nice. the director of Save the Last Dance, Julia Stiles. Yep. So, yeah, yeah. No, sure. That's right. <laughs> but here's the thing. The director on television shows especially doesn't matter. The showrunner mm. matters. The exact, it, it's completely flip-flop with, with movies. In, in film, usually the executive producer is just like the money guy. It's just like, oh, I'm going to get paid for this project. Here's $10,000. Here's 100000 whatever it might be. Uh, put yeah. my name on the project. We're, we're done. Okay, call me again when you sell the movie. In television, the EP is essentially the guy doing everything, making all the creative decisions. And Michael Mann was the executive producer of this show. Uh, he did not create it, but he did shepherd it. And every episode, at least with, I think, the first couple of seasons, feels so distinctly Michael Mann. And by the point you get to, like, season three, season four, season five, they get his, his like, signature style down pat enough to be able to replicate that formula with uh, all the subsequent episodes. Even though the, the show completely trails off and declines in quality, it's, uh, you know, it's still, generally speaking, for a procedural, uh, pretty solid show. And this pilot 
changes a lot about how television is made. The pilot was released as a movie on VHS, and it was also released overseas in Europe as a feature film, I believe, in theaters. So uh, did you guys get around to watching the pilot of Miami Vice? Yeah, I did check that one out. It's, um, uh, it's again, I, I think I'm biased because it's the first time I ever see any type of Miami Vice anything, TV show, or even the 2016 uh, remake. So I, I, I know of it because of all the references that are made about it and how it's been you know, made fun of and all that before, but uh, I just didn't find anything special about it that would get me to watch the next episode. Like it felt, it felt like a, a a movie that didn't have enough punch for me to care about. Like everything gets resolved quickly, and uh, you you get the the body cop dynamic really well. Like you can see that this is what they're going to bank on for the rest of the series their interaction and the way that they they work with each other but uh it, it felt like an episode of a tv show like i i don't know why it was released on on a theater uh but again like it, i guess it's just because of that because i've been exposed to so many other things that have reference or that have kind of looked like this uh where it just felt very average uh by the time it was done to me at least i definitely liked it a lot more than the 2006 remake that's for sure <laughs> I don't remember too much about it. Uh, I watched it a couple months ago. Um, but I do remember the bond between the two characters actually feeling like real, like there was something actually there as opposed to the uh, 2006 version. I don't know if in the movie they're just <laughs> expecting you to assume that they already have this camaraderie or something. Uh, they assume you've maybe seen the show at this point, but uh, I, in the pilot, I did appreciate that you can get a sense of the characters. Like, for example, um, gosh, what's the main character's name? There's Hobbs and no, or, uh, not Hobbs, Hobbs and Shaw. That's, Crockett. That's different no, Hobbs and Shaw. Crockett. <laughs> Crockett and Tubbs. Tubbs. That's it. Tubbs, not Hobbs. I wonder if that is a play on that. Um, but Crockett now Tubbs, right? <laughs> Tubbs. That's what I call you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That hurts. <laughs> no, I like how Crockett in the uh, in the original, you know, he you hear about how he was gonna be he was on track to become a football star, and you you get a lot more sense of like his southern upbringing and background. And uh, uh, Colin Farrell's character is just like I think it references the Almond Brothers and Leonard Skinner at one point, yeah. and that's about all you get. <laughs> his contribution um, to that was his mustache. Yeah, you get. He I, does look badass, and and I will give him that. His, uh, I mean, uh, the impression I I got while watching Miami Vice again, the remake with Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx, initially was that oh, so these two actors didn't get along on like they didn't like each other, but I don't even know if it's <laughs> necessarily that. I think it's just his acting, his 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 American accent and trying to do that character was so like it put up such a wall and um, uh, made like the artifice of it too transparent that maybe that's the impression it was leaving. I don't know. Um, I actually looked it up and it seems that Jamie Foxx was upset because Colin Farrell was getting paid more. Oh, 
Yeah. I did see and on the Wikipedia, Jamie Foxx required custom suits made for his character. Something like 14 custom suits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah Colin uh, Farrell just doesn't sell the seven there to me. No. In that film at all. Seems like he has more custom suits than Jamie Foxx does. Uh, it doesn't really seem like a Southerner would wear these custom suits. It says here that um, he refused to fly commercial, forcing Universal to give him a private jet. He said he would not appear in any scenes on boats or planes. Uh, after gunshots were fired on set in the Dominican Republic, he packed up and refused to return. Uh, so Michael Mann had to rewrite the entire movie's ending. Uh, to fit that, I guess. Jamie Foxx? Uh, yeah, it says uh, that he complained about Colin Farrell's larger salary because he had won a, uh, an Academy Award uh, for Ali. I think. No, 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 no. for uh, no, Ray. Uh, for, uh, yeah, for Ray. Um, and then he said he got a big raise while Farrell took the, a bit of a cut at the end. So I guess he was just being a fucking diva throughout the whole thing. Well, now we know where that budget went. You just call Colin Farrell Will Farrell. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I would love to see Will Farrell just hamming it up. (laughs) Miami was much better than what I'm assuming Colin Farrell got out of this and what you guys have said. Rats. Well, uh, you know, Don Johnson and Philip Philip Michael Hall, Philip Michael Bay. Which one is he? Philip Michael Thomas. There we go. That's that's who I was talking about. that guy has a lot of kids. That guy has like 30 kids. I've looked that up. He's like a spiritual yogi guy apparently right. now. He's got a big beard or something. I don't know. He's a weird guy. Philip Michael Are Thomas. Are you saying that Don Johnson Paul. isn't? No, Don Johnson. Don Johnson's very how, smooth. How tall very is he? clean cut guy. He looked like such a little guy in that, in that show uh, with his tight t-shirt and just like he looked like a little boy next to, to adults. Uh how tall is it? Or maybe it's just me again, but I like that this is your criticism yes. about my yeah. advice. The pilot is That's Don Johnson. How much like, well, I, apparently he's 5'11", five eleven, five eleven, so I'm I'm retarded. But yeah, I just That's not even he bad. just looked little in that movie. I, I didn't I mean that pilot. Uh but yeah, I, I I it was fine. It was like watching an episode of CSI, like I watching an episode of that type of show, you know, where where it's like that's terrible. You know, that's a you terrible know there's going to, to be five seasons of them just solving mysteries together, being friends. Like, yeah, it's fine, but nothing special, especially if they're watching Thief <laughs> like that. Yeah, I yeah. Don't know. It was kind of like a big. Same with Manhunter, which I'm assuming we're gonna move on to. We we will in a second. Um, I think the main thing is if you're watching television in 1984, you're watching like Knott's Landing, you're watching yeah. Dallas, you you know. Uh, what's that little girl who's the robot? Uh, my remember that show? Little Genius or something like that? My, what is it? No. No. My it doesn't bitch. matter. Yeah, I don't know. My I've forgotten the history. Precious something. <laughs> yeah, you're watching things like that. Um, um, what is it? Leap? What is it? The one where he... he Quantum Leap. Quantum Leap, yeah. Quantum Leap, yeah. Yeah, you're watching Quantum Leap. So you're watching all these terrible procedurals and then you have like a four-minute shot of them driving in a car to Phil Collins. And then television's changed just from that. The way that people approach, especially like crime shows of that that era, completely different because of Miami Vice and the pilot and the success of that. And I think it was like a massive ratings hit at the time to where Michael Mann was able to greenlight another series, which is actually, it might might be better than Miami Vice. What was the story? Called Crime Story with right. Dennis Farina. 
who has a small cameo in in Thief, and then he's like cast as the cop in everything following that. He's he's got a big part in Manhunter. So Crime Story is also a great show. Abel Ferreira directs the pilot of that. That pilot was also released as a film in the uh, in the eighties and got like a limited theatrical run, I think, in the U.S. as well as you. So. He leaves his imprint on television with Miami Vice. And that, I think, becomes the signature of everything 80s that pops up 20 years later. Vice City, the Grand Theft Auto video game, takes mm. essentially the, the whole plot of the first episode of Miami Vice, flies it to their game. They even get like the guy who does the voice of Tubbs play Lance Vance in, in that you know, game and uh, it brings back the 80s and the aughts, and I think ushers an avenue for things like Stranger Things to become popular in 2016, 2017. Mm. So, okay. from, from Miami Vice... I don't know where to go with that. <laughs> I, I don't know if there really is anywhere to go with that, aside from just complaining yeah. about the oversaturation of everything 80s theme now. Yeah, yeah. Which we do every episode. Also, there was... A- there was one thing on the episode about someone complaining that a POC was not getting work. Out, oh, but that a POC never got an Academy Award before Twitter was invented. That was very interesting to me. It's just this Latino guy that was like, I can't believe that Desi Arnaz never got an Academy Award. And it felt very of this time, but then, which is kind of weird. But yeah, that little moment caught my attention in that episode. Cool. That's great, Hans. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> Manhunter. Now, Manhunter is one of my favorite films ever. And for you, you know, it's just it's mm-hmm. the opposite. You you noticed all the flaws in this movie. You couldn't just accept yeah. it on its own terms. William Peterson nope. putting his hand to a window and saying, just you and me now, sport. No, that's that's not gonna cut it for Hans. No, doesn't he say I'ma find you, goddammit? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I wrote it down because it's so fucking terrible. <laughs> and he just looks at the yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I disagree with whatever you're about to say. Yeah. Yeah. It it had the same feel to me. No. The same eight no. I think a lot of it has to do with the music. I hated the soundtrack for this. I usually like that type of music, but it just it removed any type of tension that I could feel in the movie at all. Anytime there's a scene of two characters talking to each other, that's supposed to be this tense moment. You have this shitty music in the background just playing there, like it, like they're in some bar or whatever, and it's just, it, it ruined any tense moment that the movie could have for me. So starting from there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But what, I mean, yeah. what about everything besides that? Okay, I think the main care actor was a terrible choice uh, because he doesn't look uh, interesting. He 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 has like a no, no charisma thing. I don't think he leads the movie at all. That's that's also, the point of the that's the, the point of the Will Graham character though. Is like he's close enough to being one of these killers that he can like mentally put himself in that kind of you're framework. Supposed to care for him. You're supposed to care for the character though. As you see in like any other Hannibal thing that Will's been in. Well, like you're hold on a second. Did you did you watch that Brian Fuller Hannibal show? Okay, yeah. well that's probably why you don't like this movie because they take they take Maybe. the elements of that and they turn him into like a soft 
lovable dog collecting Asperger's guy and make that him and Hannibal gay. Just, so I'm sorry you didn't I get think, your gay yeah. romance in Manhunter, yeah. Hans. I think he would have made. What do you mean? Isn't there no gay? No, there's there's a gay? few there's a few sure gay moments. People. Yeah, there's Just not yeah. with Williamson. Yeah, but I also think that maybe because I saw him on CSI so much because I of this movie. He was cast because movie I, and and to live and die in L.A. I, no, I know, but, but I couldn't I couldn't see him as that. You know, all I could think of is like, well, now his shitty ass team is going to come and fix everything, but it never happens. Uh, and uh, but yeah, I just I, I couldn't care for him. I think the guy that played Hannibal could have been good, but I think the physic the the environment where he was in first uh, the way it was shot, I didn't care for it. I think they removed a lot of the um, intimidation that the character is supposed to have by. Even though he he cons him, even though he you know tries to get him or whatever, but or play with his mind when he's you know get, uh, thinks that his wife is gonna get hurt or whatever. At no point he felt threatening to me, uh, and especially in that scene where he has his footies on the wall while he's talking to Will, where it's just like, how am I supposed to be afraid of this guy that's in jail with his toesies on the wall talking to Will Graham? Like it just remove again remove any type of intimidation that this character could have for me that's with those two before getting to the other character like the main creepy scary guy that is just just an ugly guy great hey let's get an ugly guy and that's it cool you know like it just didn't do anything for me i don't know if it's again because i've been overexposed to hannibal things like i've seen all the movies multiple times and and i've only seen the tv show once didn't finish it but I, I'm more familiar with that universe of Hannibal than this. Uh, and it just, I guess I, I couldn't enjoy it for what it is just because of that setting, you know? So I don't know. I just, I, I couldn't get into it. Not, I couldn't tell you one thing that I enjoyed. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm looking insane. at my, I'm looking at my notes and sex scene that was shot like a Hallmark movie. Uh, yeah. The, the runs, the cops just running to the house, even though he's shooting with a shotgun from the inside and has killed multiple people. And then it's just—I don't know. It's just Hans, I, that's the best scene of the movie when he jumps through the glass as. Uh, uh, what, are you kidding? What's the song that's playing? Uh, Indagada da vida. It's yes. Fucking god! It's so bad, dude. I can't. When you, it's great, Hans. So it's bad. great. And what's also great about it is he gets in there. And then he doesn't know what to do, and he's just fucking yeah. struck down. And then he's on the ground, he's yeah. dead. Instantly and then, dead. and then he's on the ground yeah. with like a little bit of red on his face. It's really yes. bad. <laughs> it's really badly done. I don't know. Look, I I'm not going to argue with you that the whole fight scene at the end of the movie between him and Francis Dollarhide is like so choppy. Like you can see literal cuts where it's like gunshot. You see the actor, mm -hmm. and then he's like in a different position entirely. And then there's a giant blood stain on his yeah. chest. Like that's not great. Everything else is, in my opinion, master strokes. Okay, tell me for, about for this scene when they're in the supermarket and he pretty much cocks to his kid and his kid's like, all right, dad, you're a bitch. This is embarrassing. Let's go. What, what, is that, what did that do, that scene, besides making him look like more of a bitch that he already you're, it's he showing lied with his child. And and we're supposed to believe that this guy's gonna no. I, I'm I, sorry, I, he's not Charles Bron. He's not John Wayne in this where yeah. he's again. He's trying to mentally put himself in the same shoes of, as a serial killer, somebody who's addicted 
who has a he sexual compulsion for murdering women and families. In a dramatic moment because he's a bad actor. And the kid, you can tell the kid is really uncomfortable. He's like, uh, this guy's a bitch. Okay, let's move on to the next <laughs> that scene. I don't know. I just... I what do you think? But what do you think is trying to be conveyed in that scene where he's having he's, a weird moment? sensitive having a moment with his kid that he hasn't had in the whole movie and all of a sudden he's like yeah but my this and this and the kid's like cool dad that's okay that sucks let's move on and walk away from this you know it's just it's very clunky like i i just you can show a character being sensitive without just him being embarrassing in front of his is that is that him showing sensitivity or is that supposed to be was that framed more like a jack torrance with danny torrance moment but clearly this guy is not gone off the edge yet he's still obviously family man-esque but he's starting to lose himself Hmm. i don't know i think kubrick is rolling a little bit right now because oh oh oh, yeah yeah (laughs) okay well what i'm i'm very biased against it i i I don't know if maybe a rewatch would change my mind maybe my state of mind because it seems like i'm the only person in the world that has this opinion in this movie about this movie so Maybe I just need to rewatch it in a better state of mind when I'm not uh, looking for mistakes, I guess, and maybe I'll enjoy it more. Uh, one good thing about it, Chris Elliott was in it, and he was That's, great. Yeah, Chris Elliott. And I forgot that he was an actor, uh, you know, a serious actor. Very small role. Uh, yeah. How about we hear from Kyle? Because you went on your nine minute tangent <laughs> there. What, what did you make of Manhunter? Uh, I. I could see where Hans is coming from when criticizing like some of the cheesier aspects, like an '80s love scene. Like, I'm not gonna rip on a, a movie uh, from the '80s over its sex scene. I mean, some things are just '80s, and you just have to live with it. Um, I he mentioned the um, the kind of like uh, what's it called when when uh, Graham is like talking to himself when. He is he's on the he's on the trail of the killer and he finds himself becoming more and more disgusted and he'll talk to himself like I'm gonna get you bastard or he'll be saying like you enjoyed it while you did this, you know, like yeah. you enjoyed yourself. I know you 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 know, and he, he gets really enraged. And I remember watching that and being like, This seems really cheesy. Mm-hmm. And but then as the movie went on I, I kind of started thinking more like, well, maybe it's supposed to be cheesy uh, because the whole film kind of plays on Graham teetering on this edge where he's he wants to stop the killer, but he has to think like the killer. And you could tell he's afraid of what thinking like the killer will do to him. And yeah. he kind of is afraid that he might he's he has to understand why the killer enjoys it and when he starts understanding it it's almost like he's trying to talk himself out of it with this cheesy dialogue and it's almost like he is kind of lying to himself like the lines are very forced and he's like you're sick you're sick you bastard (laughs) and it's almost like he is trying to just like tell himself that as a lie because he's starting to understand why the killer feels this way and I thought maybe that was an interesting choice, um, an interesting angle to play. I'm not sure if the actor was doing that on purpose or 
he really was trying to convey his disgust, but it did seem like the actor was almost trying to lie to himself or like, you know, pep talk himself back into being a normal person again. Like I'm, this is, I think this is disgusting. You know, I'm only part of this, you know? Uh, so yeah, I, I sub, not a lot of subtext there. Just I really want <laughs> telling you how I feel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just saying it out loud. And, and but the thing is, is he doesn't feel like that. I feel like in the film, I feel like in the film, he actually starts to actually understand the real reason why these people are so fucked up, and he starts to kind of sympathize with it. Um. But the movie, I thought the movie was fantastic. The scene in the beginning when he comes into the crime scene and pulls out his little tape recorder and he just goes and pans across the entire room and then starts talking. I thought that scene was so intense. Um, just seeing how, you know, you're introduced to him on the beach, he's retired and someone's asking him to come back and you have to wonder, okay, why this guy? But then when you get, when you get to the scene where he steps into the crime scene, you could just tell he has it's some there's something about it that comes natural to him. He just knows so much from looking at that crime scene already that you almost have to feel suspicious <laughs> of him. Like, okay, how, how, he seems to already know so much about what motivates these people and how they act. And uh he has to go even further than that. It starts off, he's already so far into it with how well he's able to call out what happened on that night. Mm. But then he had. But then you realize that he's not even far enough. He has to go further by talking to Hannibal, and and um, I, I thought that was super intense. And also, it, it was. It's also a lot of realism to that. I, when he talks into his voice recorder, I got the sense that I did when I watched Thief. Like, okay, Michael Mann must. He, he's done his research. Like this is very realistic. Like this detective. Like how. The, the whole thing about the first impression and how important it is in a crime scene, uh, it was just very it exposed that aspect of being a, a detective. And I thought that was really intense. I don't know how much of that was done in film at this at the point that this movie was released. Because now I've you've seen so many Sherlock Holmes and other this this uh, prototype of like the uh, detective who is socially not all there. Right. Um, but this movie's yeah, the autistic kind of like uh, a savant. Mental superpowers, uh, but I, not really. I yeah. think this is yeah. actually the, <laughs> the first uh, instance of that, where you do have somebody yeah. who can uh, psychologically empathize with the kill. Like, usually, you're right. When you have like a Sherlock Holmes-style character, there's a detachment there, and it doesn't... You know, the the waters are not muddied at all. There's no, you know, gray line where you think maybe, okay, this guy could become like the people he's hunting. I think there's yeah. always a, a very clear wall that's put up between good and bad. Yeah, uh, very heroic yeah. the whole time, no matter what. Yeah. But this character, Hans described him as being kind of drab and kind of looking a little bit rough. And I don't know if maybe that was part of it. You know, maybe he wasn't supposed to look very stand-up. Maybe he wasn't supposed to look like someone who, you know, had all their shit together. Um, it, it kind of begs the question of, okay, like, well, this guy doesn't really look like a very slick dude. He doesn't really look like a... He doesn't look old. He's only, like, I'm guessing mid to late 30s. 
but for some reason he knows how to get into the mind of these the most sadistic people in society and uh I, I thought maybe that was a choice to kind of beg that question. Like, why Why this guy? You know, he looks so normal. And you find him in on a beach in the beginning of the film, almost like he's it's almost contrived how hard he's trying to get away from what he was doing previously. Yeah. And he just falls back into it so easily and so naturally that it almost it scares him even. And he's, he's a guy, he, I mean, William Peterson, I think, as an actor, can be fairly one note i'll give you that hans i don't think you're casting this guy as a charismatic character in, no, no. in anything and I don't, I don't think he's supposed to be that and you know you're referencing uh the beach where he's retired from the fbi from profiling serial killers like even visually he doesn't really fit into that setting like he's got a just natural darkness to his appearance like he's got a, a constantly brooding look to him that doesn't necessarily fit on like a nice sunset sitting on a log on a beach mm. uh you know somewhere with his family so uh i i think i think he was perfectly cast in this role i don't know who you wanted hans maybe like elliot gould or somebody jokey <laughs> like that i don't know but i i as far as like a 1980s actor goes especially he had only done a couple of other films leading up to manhunter i think he had a small part in thief he would go on to do To Live and Die in L.A. and play not a similar role, but like a scummier, more beat cop kind of character. Uh, but I don't know. I, I, I think he completely excels in the role of Will Graham and much more than... I mean, it's not even fair to compare him to uh, you know Edward Norton in Red Dragon or, mm-hmm. or Hugh Dancy in Hannibal. But I, I think he does a much better job of selling that character for what he actually is in this context better than they do in more commercialized versions of uh, Thomas Mann's red drag or Thomas Harris's red dragon. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 the scene in the grocery store too, um, where he cucks. (laughs) I have that that line right here. He says, he says, Kevin, Oh, because his kid says, um, do you have ugly thoughts? And he's like, Kevin, they are the ugliest thoughts in the world. <laughs> and then he turns around to face the cereal. Yeah. The cereal does that in the script? <laughs> just, he that's just what he Catholic does. Crunch. I don't know why he does that. I guess he didn't want his kid to watch him cry, but then he's still there. So I, I just, I don't know. I think the scene is supposed to be more so him talking to himself than anything. And his kid is just there to represent this naive... Uh, way of looking at the world that he's trying to hold on to himself in order to maintain his own sanity. Like the, the talk he gives his kid is kind of like the talk he has to give himself every day to convince himself that he's on the good guy's side and that he, he does find the person he's chasing despicable. And he, he has to leave out the unfortunate thing. He has to leave out a lot of the details when he's talking to his kid to, in order to do that. So he is kind of, like you said, he is kind of lying to his kid in the way that he has to lie to himself um, when he's like saying, when he's doing that contrived talking to himself dialogue, like you, you murdered her, you bastard, you, you sick <laughs> bastard. You enjoyed it. Uh, he talks to the kid, the kid's like, did it feel bad killing him? And he has to be like, yeah, it felt bad. But the thing is, is to him, it probably felt good. Yeah. It, uh, when he killed him and he knows it felt good. And 
he has to like just say it out loud that it felt bad in hopes that you know if he says it to his kid he can't lie to his kid you know I think that's kind of the I, that's what I took from no the, I the, I the think kid. that you absolutely nailed it and Hans is a hundred percent wrong here and you yeah you, <laughs> you communicated you that much better than I could have <laughs> to him anyway um, yeah. <clears throat> Hans if you're if you're to fix Manhunter. Right, you're alive no, in 1986. No, 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 no. Hold on. You're alive in 1986. I, I was. You are the the the. <laughs> were you? Yeah, I oh was born in Oh, jeez, gross. <laughs> Too old for this podcast. How do you fix this movie? Um, you remove the soundtrack to something less cartoony. Unbelievable. You uh, change the main villain so that he's more than just an ugly bald guy. How do you change the main villain? Uh, just get an actor that can perform a menacing role instead of depending on what someone looks like for it to be creepy. You don't need a guy with a gigantic head and a weird <laughs> face to be creepy. You don't like Tom uh, Noonan? Tom Noonan's, I, I mean, I think he's a great actor in general. He's great in The Pledge. He's great in Schenectady, New York. You ever see House of the I Devil? I just yeah yeah yeah. He's in that I just as don't, well. don't don't I just don't think that if you want to show a menacing character that can live in that world seamlessly like he did at at points, you can be that fucking creepy ass looking guy that's just hanging around the corner, not talking to anyone, just staring, and then like I don't know, it's just. I feel like you can do more with the character if you have someone a little bit more normal looking and get it more in the performance, the creepiness. Not so much on, you know, the guy walks into the room, you already know he's a creep. You already know that he's a bad guy by just his look. So anything that comes with uh, the surprise of him attacking someone or when he doesn't attack the blind woman and instead kisses her or whatever. But isn't that closer to reality? I mean, they they wound up casting uh, Ray Fiennes as that that character in the Red right. Dragon, and like that you take a look at him and you're like, yeah, no, he's probably not a serial killer. But you take a look at Tom Noonan, and you immediately can identify that he's probably up to no good. That he's probably a bad guy. Right. <laughs> but no then bad. all that all that tension is gone because you know he's gonna do something. Is right? it though? So you or you, or does it actually build it up? Well, the movie starts I, I, off no. with his crime scene, so you already right. know he's up to no good. Like, yeah, there's no I, questions there. There's no. This I, isn't like a murder mystery, though, Hans. It's not like, well, who's the culprit? Could it actually be? <laughs> maybe it's Will himself. No, it's it's not. We know who the he's got to nail the antagonist. I, I think my my big mistake was just having uh, Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal in mind while watching this, because what I did was just compare. And the way that the characters are handled is way different in those other movies. And since I grew up watching them, I'm more attached to those performances and the way that that world is presented in those. So maybe it's just that the, the way that that was done compared to this one, that's what put me off. Because listening to you guys talking about it, a lot of it makes sense. And I'm wondering if maybe right from the beginning, I just had this blindfolds in my eyes for like okay let's look at all the mistakes that i can find here or the differences between this and the thing that i've enjoyed before because what you're saying and what what kyle is saying about the supermarket it makes a lot of sense and and after hearing that i'm like you know what that 
goes with the other thing about him talking to himself. So maybe I just missed a lot of things from the movie just because I had that thing coming into it where I was like, okay, so this is Hannibal. So this is the Hannibal I know, and this is the world of Hannibal that I know. And this is not really like that. Not not the way that it's shot, not the way that it's presented. It is it, it not that much different, but the differences are noticeable enough for me to see or or should have not compared them. I just seen them as a different entity completely. I mean, maybe. So maybe that was. I, I think that could point. definitely be the case. I mean, this hardly feels like a Hannibal film, though, or like part of that mm-hmm. anthology. It's so not just <clears throat> handled different from the rest of the films. You know, obviously the style is completely separate of anything that Jonathan Demme did or Tony Scott or uh, who was it? Brett Ratner did did Red Dragon. Yeah. I mean, that whole series was co-opted into just an Anthony Hopkins star vehicle, mm-hmm. anyway. In some ways, I actually prefer what Brian Cox does here because it's more stripped down. It doesn't take away from the general picture that they're trying right. to paint with the film. It's not his movie. That's the thing. Right. I, with the Hannibal ones, it's Anthony Hopkins' movie. So uh, that's that's maybe another thing that influenced my opinion because he's such a... I mean, he's not a minor... He is no, a minor he is a minor character. character. Uh, he's a pretty he's a minor small character part of the movie. That is, he's a tool for the for the main character right which is the same thing he does for the other movies but he's such a central role in those that uh it's a completely different performance so i shouldn't have even compared it from the beginning so maybe i'm just being a bitch now and 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 walking back of my comments because i might just re-watch it and and give you a, a different opinion a couple of days from now yeah did you prefer red dragon to this movie Oof. No, no. Red Dragon is fine. Uh, I think the the wheelchair scene was definitely done better, but uh, I don't know. That's that's when they when they lost me. And then Hannibal Rising is just, you know, no. You, when they just they kept going with us, just like, all right, it's time to you don't to have to let count it go. That. But, I mean, Red Red Dragon. I mean, Hannibal, the movie Hannibal by Tony Scott, feels like okay, well. Uh, we can do something with this property. We can make a little bit more money, right? Anthony Hopkins yeah. is probably not, you know, doing all the the Oscar bait that he was doing in the '90s and in the '80s. And then by the time you get to Red Dragon, it just feels completely void of any kind of soul. Like that feels yeah. like a completely commercial vehicle. Edward Norton's not really interesting as well. Will Graham, Ray Fiennes is fine as uh, Francis Dollarhide, the Tooth Fairy. Anthony Hopkins is just doing his shtick at that point. And I, I don't yeah. even know if you can really count Hannibal Rising as part of that that series. It's so... Yeah. What were you going to say? Yeah. No, no, I'll, I'll just, I guess I'll just have to rewatch it with that in mind instead of just coming at it as an, an attack I do, look, thing for me. No, just... I, I think this movie's less polished than Thief. It's, mm-hmm. it's obviously... Uh, I don't know. It's dancing a line between crime thriller and horror as well, where it, it, it makes it difficult to pin it down into one category or the other. It's trying to you know balance multiple plates in that regard. And when they do lean into the horror aspects of that, it's, it doesn't work as, as well, in my opinion, yeah. as the, the crime uh, portions. Well, that's probably because he's done crime movies his entire right. career, right? Up to that point. And his only other... I mean, besides The Keep. 
yeah. I mean, the keep is his only. From the keep. Is his yeah. only experience dealing in any kind of supernatural or horror or, or gore or macabre, you know. So uh, I think it's completely understandable that maybe those would not be as on point as they probably should have been. Yeah. So, uh, any closing thoughts or comments on Michael Mann's Manhunter? I'll uh, I'll hold them until I watch it again with uh, with a clear mind and no judgments from the beginning. Yeah, I'll say I'll say uh, there's a lot of validity to Hans's criticisms, regardless. Uh, you know, if there's no right or wrong, right? You know, the like you said, the dialogue where he's talking to himself, it is cheesy. It really, it actually is cheesy. Like the lines. Well, I watched it with a couple of friends of mine. <clears throat> And they were, we were all kind of chuckling when he yeah. was, you know, I, slamming his hand on the door. You murdered her, you know. He says, oh, damn it. just you and me now, sport. Just, just you, you and me, me now, sport. sport. Yeah, exactly. He calls yeah, the killer kind of sport. Yeah. <laughs> you know. It's fair. I, I agree. I, it's, uh, it's always fun to, to make fun of your opinions, Hans. But, uh, <laughs> no, I, I do, I, like, like Kyle's saying, there is, there's absolutely some validity to that. But it's also just part of the era. I think that's going to be yeah, yeah, yeah. part and parcel with a good 70% of the movies that came out during that time. And uh, for me, I think that just adds to the charm of the film because it makes it so distinctly 1986. This is what it is. You have to accept it on its own terms. So, all right. Yeah. Uh, that concludes Michael Mann's 1980s uh, crime portion. I guess we'll factor the keep in to that. Nazis committing uh, war crimes. I don't know. Who, I don't. You you make the link yourself. Uh, Kyle, thank you for coming on the show today. Of course, uh, thank you for having me on. It's a blast, and I, I definitely need uh, an excuse to watch more films. I I for wanting to be a film score, I have really watched an appalling, lacking amount of films, and I need to up that. So. I'm always what's some, what's some carpenter. He oh well, that's my favorite scores on his movies because uh, he I think he makes most of them right. Uh, for the majority of his films, he scored them himself. Yeah, it's very very synthy. It's great. I mean, I'm sure yeah. you're familiar. I don't know why I'm acting like you don't know who the fuck. Uh, I'm such a faggot. No, anyway, I mean just, no. <laughs> just, I, <you> know. <laughs> I've, I do love Carpenter, and uh, but. I've only seen a small handful of his films, like the most popular ones. I'm sure there's a whole plethora, just like Michael Mann, that I didn't even know about. And uh, yeah, I was, I was glad that. No, you're gonna see Memoirs of the Invisible Man. That's what you need to watch. Chevy Chase. <laughs> you gotta see that. I see. I haven't even heard about that. Is that one of Carpenter's? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Hans, what would you recommend? Um, what's what's like a lesser known John Carpenter title that you would recommend? Uh, lesser known. But yeah, let's, I mean, don't don't go with like Escape from New York. That's an obvious one. I, I'll, I haven't even seen that one. I well, I would say start oh. with Escape from well, New York. Then that one's got yeah. a great great score, great soundtrack, um, and it's visually Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, overrated. Oh, I yeah. have seen that one. I have seen that one. But that's John. Yeah, Escape from New York. Even know that. Yeah. 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 But go on, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, uh, it was great to have an excuse to have to power through some films that I probably would have never even known about or got around to watching, like, especially something like The Keep. I would have never even known that ever existed. Um, 
And so it's very good to to have like a deadline too. Uh, I, anytime I watch a film, it's it's always someone else wanting to show me something. I never can get myself to just sit down and do it for some reason, even though I love film. Um, so just having like this podcast and and you guys inviting me on it forced me to sit down and just power through like eight films over the past couple of months, and uh, it it was it was great to do that. Because there's something about learn, there's something about watching a specific director's uh, filmography that is just so educational. Um, just going through their career, and I haven't I hadn't actually done that before. Just going straight through a director in a short period of time. That's something I've done, uh, especially now with the quarantine. Is I I've tried to take it upon myself to uh, take a look at directors' filmographies and and brush through them the best I can. Like people I typically probably wouldn't have taken a second glance at. Uh, but to what I was going to ask before, what what are the other Michael Mann films you have watched? You said you watched eight. We obviously covered three here. Um, I've watched, um, let's see, I'll go off the list from where we just left off. Uh, the Last of the Mohicans, Heat, Ollie, Collateral, and Public Enemies is the most recent of his that i've seen okay so you've seen just about all of them uh the the insider and black hat starring chris hemsworth black hat do you remember the trailers to black hat where he's a hacker yeah yeah <laughs> just muscular hacker <laughs> i don't know I, yeah, i've I i've heard the director's cut of black hat is significantly better than whatever came out in theaters that seems to be a trend with him you have to wait for the director's mm-hmm. cut uh, so maybe maybe we'll pick back up with the 90s and Last of the Mohicans and um, get into all that. It seems like he, he does a, you know, a, a, a fairly small amount of movies per decade, uh, usually around like three to three to four. Um, do you think that has to do a lot with the research that he does before every movie yeah. to make sure that... Yeah. I, I think it absolutely could be that. Last I checked, he was doing a... I think he's doing a prequel to Heat for his next film. Enzo Ferrari. Oh, he was supposed to do Ford versus Ferrari, and then he wound up only being an executive producer on that. And then he was like, "Yeah, I didn't like that movie, so I'm gonna go do. I'm gonna do that movie anyway, even though it already came out. He's gonna do a Ferrari (laughs) film." And then there's one that says, uh, "Untitled Tony Accardo, some Giancana biopic, which is Chicago crime bosses." Back to the basics. Yeah, maybe he needs to do that. I haven't seen Public Enemy, so uh, that could be good for all I know. And uh, if you're hearing noise right now in the background, my apologies. My girlfriend just got home from work. So that's a perfect time to close out the show. <laughs> All right. That- Thank you so much for having me on. I'm looking forward. We're going to do the uh, 90s uh, sometime? I would like to, yeah. Right. I, I, uh, I got to get around to watching Last of the Mohegans. There's like three different versions of that movie. I think uh, right. one might be on, we'll see what's on Tubi and we'll go with that. All right, that has been Movies for this week. Kyle, thank you again for coming on. 